Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 32, Absence Makes the Heart Grow Fonder, where we will be looking at Chapters 67 through 69. Nice. nice. Of the wise man's fear through the lens of opportunistic altruism. All right. I know it has been a while since we've done this, but let's see if I can still micromachines my way through this. For those that have forgotten, each week we will be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for Nemos of the Week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. And then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Though... We wouldn't mind acknowledgement that we exist. Hee <laughs> hee. Secondly, our discussions naturally assume that you have either A, read the entirety of the Kingkiller Chronicle, because seriously, I don't know what bits and pieces we're going to spoil, but probably will. The other option is you are one of those weird folk who doesn't mind having crucial plot points and details from the future, past, present, all of it, revealed to you ahead of time like some sort of mad fortune teller. Would the people getting the spoilers be the fortune teller, or would I? Anyway, needless to say, beyond this point, spoilers be abound. Also, a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love to explore. Oh no, I need a 45 second timer, and I did not bring my phone, because of course I didn't, because I forgot that this is how this goes. Alright, I'll get you covered here. There you go. Thank you very much. So, you nervous? Nah, I'm not feeling like cherries tonight. Well, we have cherries in the fridge. It is summer after all. I don't think I'm going to need them. But rainier cherries are so good. I'm sure they are, but I don't need them. And I'm even willing to share with you. And you don't have to. I'm confident. Are you? Yes. It's been a while. It has been a while. Okie dokie. In three, two, one... After practice banquets with Stapes, Quoth has dinner with Lady Lackless. Without resorting to japes, he avoids being tactless. Using Denna as his muse, Quoth writes up a sonnet that Alvron cannot misconstrue as a bee in his bonnet. When Denna skips town, Quoth goes into a tailspin and seeks something around which to wrap his time in. With the mayor's blessing, Quoth gets to work on two grams, one for his patron's guessing and the other for his sham. When Denna's return, Quoth's uh, music takes flight. She apologizes for appearing to spurn, but Quoth works to keep things light. 26.85 seconds. Told you you wouldn't need the cherries. Well, that just means I get to eat them all. Good for you. I don't have to waste one on you. Those things are expensive. Yeah, I know, right? I get them for you. Not for me. They'd be wasted on me. Something, something, you get raspberry stuff, something, something. Anyway, let's go ahead and dive in, shall we? With both feet. You don't dive in feet first. If you do, it's not a dive. That's just a jump. <laughs> anyway, let's start with chapter 67, Telling Faces. In this chapter, we get a couple things going on. So we have, first, Kvothe brushing up on the finer points of vintage etiquette. Which is kind of funny, because 
of course, Kvothe is, well, but I already know everything, but it's really nice to have review. It's also worth pointing out that etiquette differs from place to place and time to time. And like, so what's considered polite here in the United States would be considered rude in other parts of the world. Think about something as simple as like tipping. The fact that we require wait staff to survive on tips. I mean, you go to parts of Europe and tipping is considered extremely rude because it seems like you're trying to buy the server. So yeah, things can be different. You also consider something as simple as how to use the right fork, how to use the right spoon. That can differ from place to place. Apparently, whether or not you put your napkin on your lap or on your table. Yep. Whether it's okay to belch or not, it's all relative. Quoth could easily be forgiven for not knowing all of this. Or not. The rich people seem to not really be the forgiving type. That's true up to a point. The counterpoint to this is the Viceroy of Bannis. Which we'll get to in a second. But there are a couple of things I do want to talk about before we get all the way there. The amount of waste inherent in these fancy dinners is appalling. And it is appalling to Kvothe, even though he understands he has to do it to play the game. I want to talk a little bit about our lens of opportunistic altruism. Kvothe is hiding a lot of his own personal everything in order to fit in. He's being a social chameleon. He has to play along with these ridiculous rules, including wasting more food in one dinner than he might have eaten when he was in Tarbian for a month. And the thing I notice here is that in many of these cases, the wastefulness is the point. Like it is not just that it is wasteful, it's wasteful by design. Which is, ugh. I can't help but think about all of the people who don't get to eat fancy cheeses that would benefit so much from probably not that food, but the money spent on that food could go so much further for so many more people. And it's not just about haves and have nots. It's not about how hard you work. It's not about any of that because a lot of the most hardworking people earn the littlest amount of pay and can ill afford to waste a scrap of the food that they bring into their home. And especially in a feudal nobility society like we have here, these people, the mere suggestion that they would have to work for a living is offensive to them. I'm looking at this as our celebrity and billionaires in the United States. Celebrities who can afford to charter a private plane for a 15-minute flight. Ugh. Versus you and I who are flying out to visit your family in a month and the amount that we had to spend on just regular round-trip airfare when we haven't seen our family in over a year. Our little nieceslet the amount she's grown and the time we haven't seen her is just, whew. And for us, we can even say that we're privileged enough to be able to fly out there. A lot of people can't. A lot of people have no choice in that. And I can even see that 
from where we stand, some people are looking at us and going, well, it must be nice to be able to do that. It must be nice to be able to afford vet bills. It must be nice to be able to do things like ordering a pizza for lunch or whatnot. And I just want to make sure that the way that we go about things is not so wasteful in the way that it's obvious that it's wasteful in this little section. Absolutely. And I think part of it is that that culture of ostentatious wealth that Rothfuss is commenting on is significant both historically and also contemporaneously, like you pointed out. And you look at so much of opulent displays of wealth and conspicuous consumption where the waste is the point. All of it is about feeding the ego of the people who are using it, whether it's because they believe they've worked for it or because they believe that they are inherently deserving of it because of their birthright. Whether it's old money or new money, the fact is the consumption is the point here, even more so than the actual enjoyment of the stuff. As we will again see as we go forward. Anywho, we finally get to meet Maylowin Lackless. What are your impressions of her? She seems cold and stodgy, but both. I mean, okay, let's just be real here. She is definitely, definitely Kvothe's aunt. Oh, yeah. There is no question Talia Lackless was Kvothe's mom and also Malowin's sister. There's no question this is hit you in the face obvious. I don't care. It's not a theory anymore. It's been however many years since this book was written. And... Pat has pretty much just been like, obviously, obviously, this character is related to Kvothe. Obviously. This whole section. Obviously. And so it's interesting reading this for me personally, because Kvothe is just trying to figure out why he knows her, but he doesn't know her. And the thing about it is, we forget constantly that the last time he saw his mom was probably four or five years ago before she passed or was brutally murdered, whichever one you wanted to say. Anyway, as an adult, five years isn't enough for me to forget what someone looks like. As a child, though, those five years feel a lot longer and affect you more. And he's gone through a lot of traumatic crap. However, my kind of tie into this is I lost my dad when I was 10. I don't really have recordings of him because in the 80s and 90s, we didn't have a camcorder and we didn't really record each other's voices or anything. And so I don't really have things I can go back to to listen to him. But when I talked to my brother, my half brother, who shares genetics with my dad, for the first time as an adult, because I got cut off from my siblings after my dad passed. When I first heard my older brother speak over the phone, it just was a shock to my system because it sounded like dad. And I couldn't have told you what he sounded like before I talked to my brother. So I'm sure that for Kvothe, there is part of him that is 
shocked and unfortunately not able to recognize the source of that shock. It's easy to forget just how young Foth is. And this is also a resemblance that he's not looking for. Like in the example you give of you and your brother, who I think is a great guy, you were expecting to talk with him. And so, yeah, you have that connection already there. This is a familial connection unlooked for. This would be like, without expecting it, the first time you encounter your half-brother being like, seeing him in a grocery store or something like that. I mean, I have a more traumatic version of that also. Seeing an ex in a grocery store. Ugh. Yeah, well. Also, not great. And shock. But in this case, though, having that familial connection, someone who has that strong resemblance, and you're not even necessarily thinking, oh, yes, I'm looking for my brother, right? You're just saying, oh, this person looks familiar. Like, he's not even thinking about his mom. In fact, Foth does everything he can not to. I can see why he's having a hard time placing. <laughs> and I can also see why it would be such a shock to him. So what we learn about Meloin is, one, Meloin knows that she's pretty, and she's not a stranger to flattery, though she does like it. We know that she enjoys people who act boldly. She wants people who challenge her. She has a romantic streak. She wants to be swept off her feet. And we also know that she's kind of racist. Kinda? Yeah, she's Quoth's racist aunt. Yeah. It's really sad, I gotta say, when you find out that someone who you want to like has those views or has expressed those views in the past and it is brought to your attention and you're kind of put in this position of, I didn't know that, now I have to kind of judge that and temper my like of this person with those views and decide how you're going to go forward. And it's not only that Quoth just finds out she randomly hates people who don't look like him. She randomly hates his people. Randomly hates him without knowing it. Yeah. That's a, a very tough thing to get over. Like, I think of, you know, all of our friends who have family members who can't accept them for who they are, whether it's because of their gender or their sexuality and things like that, where they have these people that they want to love that matter to them, but who deny key aspects of their humanity. Or who are in relationships with people with a different skin tone and their family has decided that that's unacceptable. I mean, it's painful. Yeah. I'm not directly out to your family. I'm not not out to your family in the same way that I am not not out to everybody. <laughs> Coming out is kind of an ongoing process, and there are some people for whom trying to explain myself I don't view as necessary because I am straight and cis and whatever passing, and they don't need to know. And then there are some people where the explanation doesn't help or hurt our relationship, but it would be tiresome for me to have to explain. People for whom I have a problem getting to understand that I can't eat onions and milk don't necessarily need to know the entirety of my alphabet soup identity. 
it's not like you hide it, but you also don't go out of your way to advertise it either. Right. But, like, I don't know how that got into, like, how we got to that point. How did we get to there? How do I get back? Blah, 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 blah. Okay. <laughs> so I think our first clue that there's something off about Maelowin is when she accuses Quoth of being a Terragior, which is basically a phrenologist, which is a real life thing that people believed in. And it was this racist pseudoscience that believed that you could determine information about a person's character and future and all sorts of stuff based on the shape of their skull. Oh dear. Yeah. It's also referred to as physiognomy. I have heard of that, yeah. It's sort of this idea that a person's physical characteristics are determinant of their mental life. Oh. Uh. Yeah, there's a lot baked into that. So the fact that, okay, yeah, she's got this baked into her culture and her outlook on life, that should be our first red flag. It is interesting how... Two people from the same family can have completely different views on other people. Mm-hmm. Well, and Quoth had a radically different upbringing. Accurate. But I'm also thinking about Talia. Absolutely. I think, actually, Maelowin's upbringing is probably a reaction to Talia. Is she the younger sister? Yeah. I can see how parents who have, quote, lost their child to... X culture, X thing, X whatever label you want to put out, would then turn their parenting style into knots of younger child, you may not do this. This is all the reasons why it's bad. Right. And weaponizing the experience they had with the older child and really baking those prejudices into that child's upbringing. So... I understand why Maelowin might feel this way. She's probably had this pounded into her skull. So to speak. It's something that has been a repeated point of pain in her household. After a few other little pleasantries, we get a very brief, but quite funny, little aside. So in this culture that is all about being proper and following rules to a T and, I don't know, etiquette up the wazoo. We have an older gentleman who just is being studiously ignored by everybody else who thinks that etiquette is the be-all, end-all of everything. Sticking his finger into the cold sweet soup and kind of making a face and then deciding to eat almonds out of his pocket instead and offering some to Kvothe. I love this man. <laughs> This is the other thing about most etiquette, especially in places that revere the elderly. Old people don't give a fork. I mean, this is every old man you see at the gym in the locker room just letting it all hang out. He doesn't care. He doesn't have anything to hide. He's going to die soon. <laughs> That's a morbid way to look at it. But let's put it a different way. When I was in my early 20s, one of my ex's cousins got married, Catholic wedding. I made the most horribly stupid choice in shoes. I was trying to look more adult and more put together 
and I chose a pair of very high-heeled, very fancy-looking, very uncomfortable shoes, and I made a valiant effort to keep them on the entire day. That lasted until I got into the car to go to the reception. I took them off, rookie mistake, because when I tried to put them back on, my feet rebelled. And you know what? Older me knows for a fact no one gave a shirt. No one cared or would have like looked at me and kind of chuckled and been, okay, they're a free spirit who's willing to just not have shoes on at the reception. It probably would have made a few people happy to see me doing that because all of a sudden I also shrank three inches. My ex did not like this because he thought he was being judged. So the young people who think that they're being judged, I just, I, I need you to understand something. No, you're not. <laughs> and if you are, the people judging you are the people that are the problem, not the person who is like, okay, my choices are go barefoot or hobble around in three inch high heeled shoes that are killing my feet. And if somebody, I don't care how close they are to you, decides to give you crap for it, tell them to fork off. Yeah. Again, the very old are able to understand that one, nobody really cares. Two, what's someone going to do? Like they're not sitting here trying to impress someone new. They're not trying to gain any power because in this case, this guy's a viceroy. He's got all the power, right? He doesn't need to impress anybody. And I think being able to buck conventions is also one of those signs of wealth and etiquette. Also, I got to assume that if anyone who was studiously ignoring him noticed, which they probably did, they're probably chuckling to themselves. They probably find it entertaining and it will be a story later. Oh, absolutely. And what would you rather have the story be? Would you rather the story of you being the weird cousin that just didn't wear shoes at the reception? Or would you like to be the weird cousin that yelled at their spouse for not wearing shoes at the reception? Probably better to be the one who took the shoes off. Right. My ex is an idiot. No arguments there. <laughs> so then after the party, we get a brief interlude with Alvaron and Kvoth. Kvoth has composed a letter for Alvaron and presents it to him with a lot of confidence. That said, we all know here that Kvoth is basically trying to play Cyrano de Bergerac if Cyrano's only experience was watching rom-coms. I like the little exchange. I like the watching it but not experiencing it myself. Fake confidence of Mayor Alvaron saying, wait, isn't this a little bit much? And Kvothe saying, no, that one, that one is too much. This one is right. And Mayor Alvaron pretty much being stuck with that as his option. But you're right. I think these couple of paragraphs about, well, personally, what I knew about courting women could comfortably fit into a thimble without taking off your first finger. How astute and self-aware of you, Quoth. On the other hand, I had a vast wealth of secondary knowledge from when you were 12 and younger. 10,000 romantic songs, plays, and stories taken all together had been worth something. 10,000? Really? Really, Quoth? Really? 
And on the negative side, I'd seen Simmon pursue nearly every woman within three miles of the university with the doomed enthusiasm of a child trying to fly. And you didn't help him with all of your knowledge? You didn't try to make him not fall on his face constantly over and over again with all of your knowledge of 10,000 plays that are all about love? Well, this actually ends up working because Alvaron hasn't had any of that, apparently. He has never seen a play. He has never seen 10,000 plays. He has all the money in the world. Why would he not have seen 10,000? I'm sorry. Yeah, he just doesn't watch those kind of plays. <laughs> Let's put it that way. He's probably watching all of these like really important things. So like I stopped watching rom-coms in my 20s. Never really was interested in them. Not truly. But at that point, I was trying to pretend that I was actually a girl. And I thought that that's what girls did. And if you are a girl or a woman and you do not enjoy those, that's still okay. Turns out, not really a gender. And I enjoy action movies and I like sci-fi and I like fantasy and I like a whole bunch of things that do not fall into the stereotypical girl thing because stereotypes are dumb and rom-coms just aren't my thing. Point being, I'm betting Alvaron probably just watched nothing but political thrillers. Political thrillers and maybe like art house films. <laughs> yeah, political thrillers, art house films, and, you know, maybe with the odd sprinkling of documentary. Does seem to be his vibe. So all of this seems rather foreign. And so someone comes in with confidence and sure, Alvaron's going to believe this. But on top of that, Alvaron gets to project confidence that he doesn't actually have. Much like Quoth. And what's interesting here to me is the difference between confidence and certainty. Alvaron at this point is like, are you certain this will work? And that's, that's a tough spot to be in, right? Like, we don't live in a certain world. We never have. Like, there has never been a time when this world has been certain because everything is uncertain. There is only probabilistic knowledge of how things will turn out at best and with varying degrees. And so the people who recognize that uncertainty and accept it can be confident and say, yep, this has a 98% chance. I'm not certain, but I'm pretty confident. I know that this is probably our best chance. And they're usually the ones who are willing to act which is actually what gets them results. It's kind of like the saying of you'll make 0% of the shots you don't take. Yeah. Like I think Alvaron has gotten where he is through caution, but caution will only take you so far. And so you have to occasionally act boldly. And this is something that Quoth is preaching without necessarily practicing, as we'll see. Another thing about that, it's kind of like doing a somersault. If you try to cautiously somersault, you will very likely hurt yourself. And if you just somersault, more than likely you won't hurt yourself unless you're 40 years old and have back problems. Not talking from personal experiences because I have not tried to do a somersault in years. But yeah, it is understanding that confidence and action are important 
And caution is only good up to a point. You can overdo it. Alright, so our next chapter is 68, The Cost of a Loaf, which is a Denna chapter. But there's oddly no lines of dialogue in this one. Or more accurately, no lines of dialogue between Kvothe and Denna. There are. Are there? No. No, no, there are not. You're right. Wait, what? Right. Wait, <laughs> what? <laughs> right? That is weird. I thought that was a fun little subversion of things. We get a Denna chapter that isn't really a Denna chapter because it's mostly just talking about Denna's absence. Okay. In this case, we just had this great big Denna-shaped hole. Well, at the beginning, he talks about how he spent his time with Denna and essentially used her as his muse. And we also have another new name, which is interesting in the fact that it does not start with a D, Alora. And I had a backcountry theory kind of pop in my head about this. For those that actually listened to our interlude, there is a character who essentially took over the bodies of other people and spoke through them and was essentially their consciousness running their body like a puppet, like a skin dancer, which is something that you mentioned to me. And I'm thinking maybe, but maybe one that's a little more aware. Demonic possession. Could be something like that. Could be something like that. And I'm just wondering if, because Kvothe knows Denna's name, presumably Denna is her name, that he sees Denna in the people that she has possessed. And that she's using their actual names when she's talking to other people. I mean, it's possible, but how would you explain Diok, who knows her as Denna? Maybe he also has a similar naming thing? I don't know. Anyway, so one of the things that I note here is that even as Kvothe is using his romantic mind to talk about Denna and use that inspiration to write about Meloin. What it really strikes me is how the romantic mind oftentimes elides over the flaws of the beloved. So he talks about a couple burrs in the blanket, so to speak. The first, of course, being the presence of Jared, who is some minor noble around town who is pursuing Denna. A minor aside, I like the whole, as my dad would have said, burrs in the blanket. Because your dad and your grandpa and my dad all had little sayings like that. And sometimes one or the other of us will pull them out. And then we'll get a look from our significant other who will say, hi, dad. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. So the first is obviously the presence of Jared. The second is Denna's propensity for up and disappearing. As though those things are equivalent. I mean, he actually says the second one is a significantly larger burr. <laughs> That's fair. I think at that point it's a little more than a burr, but you get what I'm saying. Back to our trying to spin the truth in a way that is less harsh. It's not even that we spin the truth. It's that these harder aspects of the other person kind of get glossed over. 
like in that honeymoon phase, there are all these little things that you notice, but you're like, nope, not even going to pay attention to them. And then when things get more serious, when you start to know each other a little better, those can become pretty major points of contention. I think there's little of that going on in both cases. Like, Quoth is completely glossing over the fact that Meluin Lackless hates Quoth's people. That's a pretty major thing. To paraphrase, he says, despite the fact that she's racist against me, even though she doesn't know it, I like her. She's great, she's great, she's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, except there, there, there's just this one teeny tiny thing. Just a small thing. Just, it's no big deal. It's no, uh, okay, it's maybe a big deal, but... Okay, it's definitely a big deal. <laughs> and the same thing with Denna. I really love her, except there's little tiny things that are just a little bit off. So this, of course, leads Quoth into a bit of a tailspin. A little bit of a depression, a little bit of a creative funk. And mind you, he has a short time frame to convince Meloin Lackless to love Mayor Alvaron. He's got his work cut out for him. It's like a month and a half. Yeah. And the difficult thing is that no matter how tight the time frame, inspiration doesn't care. Lack of inspiration definitely doesn't care. Witness the fact that I have kind of stalled on being artistic. So Quoth recognizes here, and I think he's pretty smart in this, that he needs a new challenge. He needs something to take his mind off of all of this. This is, I think, an example of the sleeping mind that Elodin talks about. That inspiration is spontaneous. It's coming from that sleeping mind and you can't just force it to wake up. This is absolutely wonderful advice though for anyone who is going through literally anything of a slump. If you are finding yourself trying and trying and trying and trying and trying and trying and failing to do a thing that you want to do, or you keep making half starts or false starts or any of that. Go do something else. Same thing with the advice that most people give you for if you are experiencing insomnia. If you can't go to sleep within like 15 minutes, get up, go do something else, come back to bed later. Yeah, I think this is just Quoth recognizing he needs to move his mind elsewhere. On top of that, while it is true that he does think that there is a possibility that Alvaron is in danger from afar, he also takes the opportunity to make himself a gram, if not a great one, as we're focusing on the opportunistic altruism. He's, yes, doing things with the appearance of being selfless and doing things for others but he's also definitely taking the opportunity to enrich himself. And in this case, I think protect himself because he knows that, oh yeah, that gram that I'd worked so hard on, it's at the bottom of the ocean. And sooner or later, I'm going to be back at Emre. And sooner or later, whoever it was that was trying to poke me to death might try again. And even if it's not that person, it might be somebody else. We know that Quoth, if nothing else, knows how to make enemies. It's like a little collection. He's got a knack for it. And so, yeah, if, if we're Quoth, 
It's probably a smart idea. But one of the things that kind of makes me laugh here a little bit is Alvaron talks about, could they cast a spell or a sending on me? And then Quoth goes, he probably believes in fairies and the walking dead, the poor fool, which are both things that Quoth is going to have direct experience with within this story. Yes, I noticed that as well. Like, because we know he's going to meet Felurian of all people. Right. And then we know that he had that encounter with the skin dancer at the end of the first book. Right. Which is basically Walking Dead. It's like a demon possessing a corpse. <laughs> like, the poor fool believes in things that I'm going to be dealing with very shortly. <laughs> I also like the, however, attempting to re-educate him would be tiresome and counterproductive, which is my experience with every time I've ever had a disagreement on Twitter or Facebook or any other social media with a person I do not know personally. Yeah, at this point, it's worth just saying, okay, this is not a conversation for now. This may not even be a conversation for us at any time. I have a rule. If I make a comment and someone takes it the wrong way or purposefully tries to poke holes or whatever they want to do, I have one more comment that I will make to clarify a point. And then if they keep hounding at it, if they clearly were not arguing in good faith, if they clearly just want to be outraged, nope, no that is not a productive conversation. I am not here to re-educate you. I am not your Google. Sorry, guy. This is also, I think, some wisdom in Quoth's part in recognizing that he doesn't have to be an internet atheist. Puts on fedora, milady. Fair enough. Like, here's what he's dealing with. Alvaron has a whole bunch of superstitions that he's been raised with. And in this case, they are not actually harming him. Right. There is nothing that Quoth can do to disabuse him of these superstitions. Honestly, it doesn't matter. This is kind of how I view people who believe a lot of stuff about crystals or you know, UFOs or aliens or Bigfoot or whatever. I'm like, look, I can't prove or disprove any of this. This is not a conversation that is going to be productive for either of us. I'll let you continue on with your beliefs and your theories, and I'll smile and nod, and we aren't going to argue. Right, exactly. However, if nothing else, this does serve as giving Alvaron a framework that Quoth can use to explain what he's working with. And that framework is really all Quoth needs to justify his project. I mean, to touch a little bit on it, I am in at least one Facebook group about the Kingkiller Chronicle, and there is one person that keeps coming up in comments about literally everything, even though it's against the rules of the Facebook group, complaining about book three. And I made one comment to kind of say, hey, could you just lay off? This is unproductive and frankly tiresome. And he's just like, yeah, but I have all these reasons why I think that I deserve to be angry that it doesn't exist yet. And I'm like, Ugh. and then I just stop talking to him yeah so the other thing i see here is that quoth does recognize that alvaron is asking what's this going to cost me because alvaron knows that this is a non-trivial task that quoth's time and labor are worth something because 
Quoth is taking time off from working on this other important project to do this. What's going to make it worth his while? And it's interesting here that Quoth talks about, okay, you know, I have some projects I'm working on. I could use it. And also I know this other talented musician who could use a proper patron. You know, he's thinking of Denna, obviously. Although the way that it sounds to Alvaron appears to be, I have this friend who needs a patron being Quoth needs a patron, which is true. There's that. And also, as much as that may be a thing that Denna may need objectively, I don't know that that is help that Denna wants. Right. In fact, actually, we kind of know that it isn't. Yeah. Don't white knight for people. It's always good to keep an eye out for opportunities for your friends. And run it by your friend and ask them if they want it. It's all well and good to say, hey, I know a guy. Let me ask on your behalf. Might be useful. They might say no, but whatever. Give them that opportunity. And then it is another thing to just do it for them. So moving on, we've got chapter 69. Nice. Such madness. So this one is actually a proper Denna chapter in that she actually has dialogue. We know that Kvothe has been kind of going into Denna withdrawal, so to speak. He's seeing her when she's not there, or is she? Which is kind of how I thought about that demonic possession almost thing. We also know that Brayden is out of town. That will play into some other long gestating fan theories. I mean, Denna and Brayden, both gone at the same time. You're right, Denna is Brayden. <laughs> we never see them in the same place. You are adorable. <laughs> so at this point, Quoth is setting himself up with the task of actually making the gram. And I'm sorry, I have a good memory for doing things that I have done before. But he says, oh yeah, I just remembered the schema for this intricate thing that is meant to protect not only my life, but also Alvaron's life. And I'm just going to trust that I know how to do this properly after doing it once. We do know that he has an eidetic memory, or at least Story Kvoth does. Fair enough, but I think that there is still Dunning-Kruger effect going on here. Like I say, Story Kvoth, probably not. Actual Kvoth, I'll buy that. Yeah, and just for the record, I do draw a distinction between Kvoth as he appears in the story as told by Kvoth, and Kvoth the actual historical figure. This plays into the whole Mary Sue aspect of Kvoth's character. Kvoth is not going to tell you when he screwed up and there wasn't a good resolution to it. Kvoth is going to tell you, I screwed up and I learned from my screw up and of course I did and so I never made that mistake ever again. He just finds completely new and interesting ways to screw up. So anytime that story Kvoth screws up, it is ultimately going to turn out well. Or at least interesting. Because remember, Kvoth, the narrator, cares more about telling a good story than he does necessarily about telling the true story. I think that it's true. I just don't know that it's blow by blow accurate. <laughs> So, yeah, we've got an unreliable narrator, in other words. The other thing that I notice here is Quoth is exhibiting the sort of caution that he advises Alvron against. 
because he's seen all of these negative examples of people acting too forwardly with Denna, being too clingy, being too effusive in their praise. Being too obvious. And so he's always like, well, I can't afford to actually risk anything. I don't want to take any risks to tell her how I feel because I've seen how she reacts when people tell her how they feel. In spite of the fact that it's not that Denna, like the impression I get here, it's not that Denna doesn't like it when people tell her that they love her. It's she doesn't like it when people she doesn't feel that way about tell her that stuff. There's also a lot of both assuming he knows what's going on in her head without actually asking her or without her offering it. And he's so afraid to just try telling her how he feels because he assumes that this is just going to drive her off. There is an interesting sentence or a couple sentences after she apologizes for just disappearing on him. They sit together in silence for a while, and then she turned to meet Kvoth and says, I hope you know without my telling you. I hope I don't need to say it. And I think Kvoth thinks she's saying, I don't need to tell you why I've gone or that I've gone. I'm wondering if she's trying to say, I hope I don't need to tell you I love you. Yeah, that's actually how I read it. Or that... I hope I don't need to say that this isn't about you at all. I'm not running from you. I'm not afraid of you. And so there's a lot of her assuming that he knows what she means. And there's a lot of him assuming that he knows what she means. And it's frustrating to watch a relationship between two people who very clearly do care for one another, not talking to one another and just agonizing in their own heads about things that they could just have a conversation about and their relationship would be stronger. Right. And he doesn't have to be a super creep about it. Like we're not saying Kvothe needs to go like make a big move on her or whatever. He just needs to be able to say, Hey, I really care about you a lot. I love you. I understand why you have to leave sometimes or more accurately. I understand that you have to leave sometimes. I don't like it but I understand it and I'm going to be here for you when you get back. Something as simple as that, you know, that would be an honest way to move forward and it would actually move their relationship forward because it would say to her, hey, I care for you, I love you, I value you without having to be clingy, without having to be this creeper. It would enable her to maybe be a little more open. It would give her more agency. I think what she doesn't like the most is that when these guys are being clingy and possessive, it takes away her choices. And there have been a couple of little spots where Quoth is talking to Alvaron with all of the certainty of a teenage boy thinking that he understands everything about women that just make me want to throw up because... He's talking about women as a monolith instead of individuals, talking about the individual women that he is referring to, which is specifically in this case, Malin and Denna, as representative of their entire gender. Right. And even then, he's missing the point. 
in so many cases. He's got to be able to say, okay, a little bit of boldness here is needed, which is to say, hey, I'm going to actually talk to you about how I feel so that you can make a decision. And he's so afraid that she's going to make a decision that he doesn't like. And so even though he thought about sharing the music and goodness knows the poems that he has written with Denna as an inspirational character, he knows he can't. He resisted because he doesn't want to come off the same way as all of these other men that keep dashing themselves against the jetty that is Denna. I think there is also an element here where he is mistaking the behaviors for the motivations. And in this case, it is not the behaviors that Denna is rejecting. It is those motivations. And based on what we've seen, Foth is different from those various suitors in how he behaves around Denna and how he thinks of her. And how Denna thinks of him. There is a demonstrable difference. And so he's seen person A give her a gift and she doesn't like it because he's obviously trying to buy her affections. So Kvothe learns the lesson that don't get her gifts. Got it. He doesn't learn don't try to buy her affection. Right. Giving her gifts because you thought she might like it is different from giving her gifts so that she'll like me. Even though the behavior is the same, the intent is different. An intent does actually matter. And the context matters. And it wraps up this section saying, so I did not try to win her and contented myself with playing a beautiful game. One of those things is a good thought. Just exist and play the hand that you're dealt and react in real time. Treat her like a person. Treat her like a friend. And one of those things is possessive and gross. The trying to win her is still icky, but he's still young. And I can forgive him, but ew. I think we've talked about the important stuff here. So do you want to go ahead and move on into Phronimos? I do. It's your turn. Who'd you pick? The majority of our chapters have been centered around Quoth, Denna, almost never either one of them. I mean, never Quoth, but not likely Denna. Alvaron, who I don't particularly view as a very wise person. Malowin, who is racist as all fork. None of these sound like people I want to prop up, shall we say. We shall. So who'd you pick? So I picked the Viceroy of Bannis. Kind of had a feeling. Because seriously, follow his example. Seriously. Don't give a fork, fork about etiquette. Be the weird person that everybody kind of chuckles about. Enjoy being that person. Play into being that person. It's way better than having a stick up your ash. He kind of reminds me of a Penn and Teller bullshit episode on etiquette where they talk about how there's a difference between being polite and following etiquette. And the key difference is how you think of others. Etiquette is about what other people think of you. And politeness is about how you think of others and show consideration for them. So if you use the wrong fork on the wrong course at dinner, that's etiquette, and it's really no big deal. It's also kind of dumb. 
if you follow it, great. If not, don't worry about it. The only reason it wouldn't be dumb is if there was an ergonomic reason for using that fork instead of the other fork. But in that case, if you do it wrong, you're only hurting yourself. You're not actually harming anyone else. Whereas being polite would be something like making sure to compliment the person who made the meal. Regardless of what culture you're in, telling someone that you appreciated their gesture towards you is always going to be kind. Offering something that you like to someone else, that will always be polite because it's about what you're doing for someone else. It's not necessarily a performative thing. There's an element of thinking of other people to it. I think that's the more genuine thing and that's the more important thing. And I think we see some of that here. The Viceroy is technically violating etiquette by doing the whole tasting the soup and uh, that's not for me. I would agree with them who makes a sweet soup, but... It's an acquired taste. Maybe like a cold soup, I could see that being a thing. Like a gazpacho. Is gazpacho sweet? I've had like a watermelon gazpacho once. That would be interesting to try. Yeah, that's what it was. But the thing that makes the Viceroy polite, I think, is he's like, well, this is not for me. I'm going to be eating these nuts out of my pocket. Would you like some? He offers them around to his other neighbors. That's the polite part. It's also the cute part. He's like a little squirrel. A <laughs> little bit. I think you picked a good one. Thank you very much. All right. So now it is my turn for the interesting fact of the week. So this one is fairly tranchant, given that we just got back from our little fictional New York vacation. So this is about the myth that it's New York's water that makes for great pizza. And I found a couple of articles, one from WNYC about New York water, and another one from Sirius Eats's J. Kenji Lopez-Alt about how the New York water works. And it's really fascinating. So J. Kenji Lopez-Alt is one of my favorite food writers and general food personalities. He goes into this really deeply. He did a triple blind test. Like it involved double encryption of the various water sources. He figured that it had something to do with the water's mineral content. So he picked different bottled waters that had different mineral contents. And then he poured them into anonymized containers and labeled each one of them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Then his wife noted down each of these and then changed out the labels on top of that so that he could go to the tasting without having it spoiled either because she wanted him to be able to have the full experience. And she, of course, didn't know which ones these actually corresponded with either, so she could go to the tasting as well. So they had pizza cooked by a professional pizza chef and everything. They had a panel of judges. They rated all of the pizza on multiple axes. I'll pull these up here because this is pretty epic. So they rated it based on dough toughness. So is it tender like cake or chewy as leather? Does it crackle? So dough crispness. Oven spring. Does it form large airy bubbles or is it compact and dense? And then overall quality as in how well do you like it? And the thing that they found is that there really wasn't a correlation in terms of the actual mineral contents or anything like that. But what they did find is that the more crispness a dough had, the more people tended to like it. That was the biggest predictor of anything. Did they say whether or not the New York water caused the crispiest? 
they tried it and it did not have actually a significant impact compared to the other mineral waters. But what they did find was the single biggest predictor of whether the pizza would be good was having a professional pizza chef cook it. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, we got into this yesterday because we watched a food theory episode where Matt Pat did tests in his own kitchen with New Jersey water, Raleigh, North Carolina water, and Richmond, Virginia water. And then he did some tests on the contents of the water, like chlorine and fluoride and a few other things. And so the thing that I learned is that if you want to produce something that is thin and crispy and nice is that you should probably just use distilled water. So Kenji Lopez-Alt basically says, as far as pizza goes, use whatever water you want. Matthew uses Lower East Side tap water. Clearly the small differences that arise naturally in the course of making a good pizza by hand far outweigh the minor differences that water could make. Like the fact is he's got this guy who makes fantastic handmade pizzas. This is why he's made good pizzas. He knows all of the tricks, he's good at the timing, all of the science of actually making pizza, and it's more than the water. That water isn't a panacea. I mean, the fact is that even as New York pizza is very famous, very little of it is actually good. As evidenced by another video that we watched right after watching the MatPat video, and that was the Try Guys just walking down one street of New York and getting a slice of cheese pizza at every pizza place that they could find in, granted it was Midtown, but the hit to miss ratio was very weighted towards the miss. Yep. And it simply is the fact that people who are good at making pizza will make good pizza regardless of the water they use. And regardless of where they are. So just to give you an example, a good friend of mine is from New Jersey. And when he moved out to Portland, he was immediately disdainful of all of the local pizza places. He's like, oh, the pizza around here is terrible. It's so bad. Oh, and then he found, oh, there are actually some really good pizza places around here. You just have to go to those because, yeah, there are bad pizza places in New York and New Jersey. There are bad pizza places everywhere. But the thing is, even when it's bad pizza, we're not not going to eat it. But there will always be that good place that's kind of the local secret. Yeah. So anyway, I thought that was really interesting. Gives you something to think about. So it really is a myth that it is specifically the water. The water can help, but it's no substitute for good craft. So that it's time for the thing of the week. What'd you pick? So... A few weeks back, I mentioned how I fell in love with Heartstopper, which led me on a quest to acquire and read all of the rest of Alice Osman's books. So I did, and I'm in the middle of the very last one, Loveless, but the one that I am going to recommend today is I Was Born for This. And it's something that I recommended to you and that you read. It's a very quick read. It is a pretty good dive into the two different sides of the coin of fame. There are two characters in it, one of whom, Jimmy, is in a band 
who is on the verge of becoming like super famous, currently super famous in the UK, which is what matters to the story. And then the other person who you get a point of view from is one of their fans, one of the ARC, the boy band's fans, who wants to think of herself as one of the good fans, one of the non-obsessive, but still comes off as very protective in almost that helicoptery parent way, where you've got this whole load of people who have never once in their life ever even gotten close enough to pretend that they have met any of the members of this band saying, I love you. You changed my life. You did all of this for me. And then you've got the people who just wanted to make music. And while they are not upset directly that they influenced their fans' lives, they do not feel like they are responsible for their fans' happiness or any of these things that their fans are giving them credit for, for changing their lives, for affecting their lives. But they're also showing how actual people who are viewed through this lens of they're a creator for me feel being on the other side of that. It has a lot to say about parasocial relationships that you see on Twitter where like you see people who are famous and they're on Twitter or Instagram or whatever and there is this assumption on the part of us, the rest, that we've been given this glimpse into their lives and that it is somehow relevant, that we know them, that we have a relationship with them that is beyond just, this is the person in a band I like. In this case, a lot of it is, I love you. I want what's best for you. I want to see you be happy. And the public face that each member of the band puts on is one that says, I'm happy. I am worthy of your adoration. It gets into how entitled fans can be. It gets into how toxic it can be when you ship real people. Don't do that. The piece of culture that I was most reminded of was Metalocalypse, the Doomstar Requiem. I mean, if you look at it, Metalocalypse as a whole is in many ways about toxic fandom and how it looks from the outside. Now, granted, the Metalocalypse viewpoint is, even as it is from the point of view primarily of the band Death Clock, the world's sixth largest economy, from their point of view, all of their fans are venal and stupid and pointless. And at the same time, Death Clock themselves are venal and stupid and pointless. Like that's fundamentally the point of view is that neither of these groups deserve one another and they kind of do at the same time because they're all that stupid. And I kind of got that feeling here as well. Because we take this public facing figure and we look into his life and his life is not as charmed as one would expect from someone who is famous, has a whole lot of money, can quote, do whatever they want, except step outside of their apartment without a bodyguard. And also takes a look at the point of view of someone who is frankly obsessed to the point of ignoring their own lives in favor of 
pretending that they understand the lives of this famous group that they like. We get this bit where fundamentally both Jimmy and Angel, who's the fan in this case, have these very skewed perspectives on what's going on. And they're both unreliable narrators fundamentally because for varying reasons, they are wrapped up in their own lives. They don't understand the people around them because they've been isolated and they're viewing everything through this parasocial lens. And even as this fandom has enabled the band to grow and to get all this money and publicity, it's also severely constrained who they are and what they can be to one another and to their friends. It's constrained how they view their lives. Some members of the band outright hate their fans. Others are a little more ambivalent, but there's this real element of skepticism towards fan culture. And I think it's worth keeping in mind. I definitely had to take seriously how I look at public figures that I admire. And it made me say, okay, you know, there are public figures who I admire their public face, but I don't know them. All I know is what gets put out on social media by their social media teams. All I know about them is what I see in papers or whatnot or on blogs, but that isn't the whole story. I don't have to necessarily believe they're lying, but I also have to recognize that there is a lot of stuff that I am not privy to and I don't deserve to be privy to. I'm not entitled to be privy to. And I think that this is a really poignant thing to read for anyone who feels entitled to book three. I think that maybe those people who are so insistent that they deserve to have the next book to the point where they're harassing the author aren't going to take the lesson. Oh, probably not. Like, I think about how do I feel about Patrick Rothfuss? Well, one, I don't know him. Right. I've never met him. I've read a few of his blogs. I've read his tweets. I've read his books. And I know what I have seen. But what I also know is that what I have seen is what he has allowed us to see. I've seen him speak and I've seen him play D&D for an audience. I know the things that he has publicly announced and let other people know. I know that he's been struggling with ADHD. I know that from the outside, it seems like he's been struggling to get through to be able to publish book three. I've also seen a lot of fans, and I myself included, defend him against the more toxic fans. Let's... I don't think that you can be a fan and treat the person that you are a fan of so horribly and with such abuse and still be considered a fan, but you can call yourself that whatever. But there is a line to be drawn between explaining what has already been said by the person in question. So Patrick Rothfuss has said specifically that he has ADHD and that he is now on meds and there are some other things that he has specifically allowed the public to know. But there's a difference between informing other people of what he's already said and linking them back to what he said and deciding that you need to white knight for him, which I don't think he wants. No, I, I don't think he wants that. I don't think he wants to be in the situation where he feels like anyone should feel the need to. 
I think that right now, the kindest thing is just to recognize he's going to take his time to write the book he wants to write, and we should all consider ourselves lucky if he's able to finish it. Also, seriously, not every single tweet that he makes needs to have a pile-on of fans saying, where's my book? Can we just accept that sometimes he has funny tweets and that we should take the funny tweet and go and say, this was a funny tweet. Let me just enjoy it. Enjoy it for what it is. And remember that he's a real person. There's a real person on the other end of every Twitter thread that you get into. And none of it fits into 200 characters. Honestly, though, I knew that I was going to start getting a little bit preachy, which I get when I started talking about this book. But the book, I was born for this super awesome book. I also think that everyone that has all of a sudden discovered Heartstopper and who is on Twitter making the kids, literal kids, who play the characters trend, need to also read the book and kind of get it through their head that they probably shouldn't be treating the people who made Heartstopper in this way that is this rather... Ugh. It's dehumanizing. Yeah. It's objectifying. There is such a difference between being a fan of the thing and then like trying to ship real people who are acting in the thing. That's all I have to say. Just don't be that person. Agreed. So with that, Let's go ahead and move on to seven words. You have seven words from the book. What'd you pick this week? I picked something that I don't actually agree with, but I think sums up the relationship between Quoth and Dinah. Okay. Too much truth can ruin a thing. Yeah. That kind of sums up their relationship. That's what I thought. Or more accurately, I think it sums up Quoth's view of their relationship. I think part of it is... Too much truth means Quoth has to confront things that he'd rather not confront. Right. Too much truth for whom? Yeah. And you have seven words from life. So this is something that is often said on many a Zoom call at work for me and is also common just in our general Slack culture. Tell your cats that I love them. <laughs> That's adorable. I like the people I work with. I do too. I love that there is just a group of cat lovers and a group of people who share photos of their kitties. I love kitties. Me too. We have one person in our company who she lives in Japan, so she only posts very late in our afternoon, very early in our mornings, but she just takes beautiful photographs of all of her animals and they are all beautiful. <laughs> and we're all just like, oh, Tell your cats that we love them. Tell them they're beautiful for us. And they all have names that mean things like dream and majestic and noble. And I'm like, that could apply to all of your creatures. That is so cute. Yes. Well, speaking of cats, little bonus suggestion. Everyone play Stray if you haven't. Good call. So that I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 70 and 71 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of puzzle solving. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. 
audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get things like special bonus episodes on The Sandman, and we will be having another one on the Autumnal Equinox, which will be covering the fourth volume of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. Also, another bonus recommendation, which will probably get touched on in more depth. Watch The Sandman on Netflix. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. So I don't know about you, but it feels a little weird going back to the middle of the wise man's fear. Yeah. I mean, we've been off for about six episodes. Twelve weeks. We were gone to Lovecraftian New York City for twelve weeks.